Good evening. Uh, this morning we talked about the call of Jesus, and we talked about um, some of the implications of what Jesus did for the entire story of the Bible leading up to it. Uh, there are a lot of, of incomplete calls. Uh, there's a lot of imperfect obedience that we see in the Bible leading up to Jesus. And Jesus is our glimpse of the perfect example of someone who fulfilled the call of God, and in so doing, fulfilled each of the calls prior to him. And we are invited into that calling as, as uh, children of God and as disciples of Jesus to continue in his life and, and continue in that mission. And so that's one of the beautiful images about when we refer to the church as the body of Christ. I mean, just the, that language itself, that we are the body of Christ. Christ's body was beaten and hung on a cross, and he died, and he was raised, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, but his body is also still here living, breathing, and working for the, the kingdom of God. And, and that's what we are doing, that we are, we are his hands and feet is a, is a common expression. That's a wonderful expression because th that's what we're called to be. We are called to continue in the very life and ministry of Jesus so that while his body is at the right hand of the Father, his body is also throughout the world living and serving and in continuing in the steadfast love of God towards one another, towards our neighbor, towards our enemy, and towards God. And so that's something that we're invited into, and that's one of the wonderful calls that we have as Christians. It's one of the things that's exciting to think that the work that you do on behalf of the kingdom, it's not just your work, but it's also the work of the community of believers, the body of Christ, but it's also the work of Christ himself. It's like you are sharing in, in, in a very real way. You are fellowshipping with Jesus himself in the work that you do on behalf of the kingdom. Like you and Jesus have that. You, that that's a special connection between you and Jesus when you suffer on behalf of the kingdom or when you serve others on behalf of the kingdom. That's something that you and Jesus are joining together in. And you know that he's with us always, even to the end of the age. He continues to be a part of our community here, and he continues to encourage and to motivate and to strengthen and support. And, and so it's, it's a wonderful idea that we are invited into the mission and the call of Jesus. But it's not always easy. Um... Even in our own lives, you know, I've, I've never faced a cross uh, literally before, but there have been things where, even sometimes embarrassingly simple things, uh, I was nervous or, or afraid to do them, or um, the, the, the potential discomfort uh, made me hesitant to continue in with what I was called to do. And one thing that does give me comfort, though, you know, I, it's not... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's nowhere near the magnitude of what he was enduring. But Jesus is tempted in all points as we are. And even with his call and even with his mission that's so important that God himself became incarnate in human flesh to fulfill the night before. He's in a garden praying in anguish for some other way, for some way out that God would remove this cup from him, that this hour would pass from him, that some way this could be avoided. And it's a remarkable prayer. Um, you know, Jesus knew what his mission was. You see a tremendous amount of, of um, 
he, I, I, there's a word that I'm trying to think of that it's escaping me, but basically he conf, con, he's conflicted. Uh, he's conflicted about it. It, it. He's He knows what he wants to do, and he is determined that that's what he's going to do, but in a very real way, that's not what he wants to do. And he knows that there is an all-powerful God who loves him, and that he loves. And he is has to be thinking... <laughs> an all-powerful God who could do anything. Like, he could blink and the world would disappear. He, he could do anything. He, he speaks a word and, and whole universes come into being. Surely he could have a different way. Like, surely there's some other option here than the plan that we have uh, right now. Like, sh- surely. And, 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 you know, is there, and, and that's, a, that's actually one of the things that a lot of times people who, uh, who are not Christians they, they, and sometimes even Christians, you know, even, I'll say, sometimes even me, when, when I think about the plan of God, you have to wonder if God's all-powerful, couldn't he just forgive? Why did there need to be a death on a cross in such a, a, an agonizing way? And, and those are thoughts that I think a lot of people can have when you look at the story of God. And as a matter of fact, I think that's one of the things that was confusing to early Christians, because you could have thought there were other ways, you know, you could have thought, but perhaps, but that's not the way God did it. And you know that's not the way God did it, because the resurrection shows that this actually was, what, like, that Jesus was right. This was God's plan, and this was what God was doing. And so Christians had to come up with a whole way of understanding the world and the actions of God in light of what they called a scandal, a scandalon. You know, it's, it's a, that's a Greek word, and it's usually translated as something like a stumbling block, but it was confusing to them. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talks about how, how hard it is to preach the message of Christ crucified, because Christ and crucified are two very different messages in the ideology of most people. Christ is one of glory and, and fame and power and success. Crucifixion is failure and embarrassment and disgrace. And, and to say Christ crucified is as oxymoronic as you can get. And so when Paul is forced to preach that message, because there's no other message of Jesus. He, he even says, I determined to know nothing among you except save Christ and him crucified. Like, like that is the message. And, and you'd think, well, there could be a better or a more simple one or one that's not so difficult to digest. But, and Paul says to the Greeks, it's foolishness. And to the Jews, it's a scandal. But to those of us who were called, even though none of us would have predicted it, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. Like, this is how God revealed his love for us, the depths of which has never been seen before. That God would become a man, fulfill our, fulfill all of the areas in which we failed on our behalf, and then die on a cross out of love for us to defeat the powers that consumed us, and then raise from the dead so that we can have hope of joining with him in that new life. It's a beautiful story. But the night before you have to do it, it's a hard story to swallow. In bringing that story to, to people who are not 2,000 years on this side of it, it doesn't shock us quite like it should. That should be a shocking story. Like, it should be a story that, that, that we realize there's something entirely unprecedented and unpredictable about the God that we serve, because this is not what anyone would have written. This isn't a story anyone would have made up. By the way, that's one of the reasons I think you could be pretty confident someone didn't make this story up. Uh, Because that's not what anyone would have made up. There was no 
messianic expectation of this to happen in, in ancient Judaism. And you have a lot of diversity of ancient Jewish thought, and we don't have any of it that's expecting him, the, the Messiah to die on a cross and to be raised three days later. This shocked everybody, and it threw everyone's theology into a tailspin, and those who accepted the resurrection of Jesus, they had to make sense of it somehow, and they had to preach this message somehow, and that's one of the fascinating things about reading the New Testament, reading the letters of Paul. You have a brilliant mind deeply immersed in Israel's scriptures who is, through the Holy Spirit, making sense of what God did through Jesus. But again, that night before, as beautiful as the story is, and as much as it clearly has resonated with people, I mean, people are still telling the story thousands of years later on the other side of the world. It's, it's a powerful story. But the night before, you have to think, isn't there an easier way? In Mark chapter 14, I'm going to cheat a little bit. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to have our lesson come out of Mark 14, because I'm teaching Mark on Sunday mornings in Bible class, and I ran out of time. And so we're going to stick in Mark 14, and I'm going to, I'm going to start trying to stick the end of Mark in different places and in sermons and things throughout the, the next couple of weeks and months. But uh, in Mark 14, this is the story of Jesus uh, going to Gethsemane. And uh, you, you can read this in, in each of the Gospels, and there's uh, interesting little nuances and um, interesting similarities and dissimilarities in, in each of them that, that are telling. But uh, Mark's portrayal of it, it really is fascinating. And there's a way in which clearly the focus is on Jesus as you read through this. But also, I think you're supposed to be paying close attention to Peter right alongside uh, Jesus should be our primary focus as we think about what he's enduring, but there is a subtle comparison that's taking place that's going to end up becoming pretty important as you continue to read the, the story and as you continue to read uh, in Mark chapter 14. But before Jesus goes to Gethsemane, um, he goes to an upper room, he breaks bread, he, he uh, gives us what becomes for us the Lord's Supper. Uh, he describes it and defines it. And then his disciples and him, they sing a hymn together and, and they go out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, historically, there's a good chance that the hymn that they sang was actually Psalms uh, like 113 through 117. That those are called, that's a section of Hallel Psalms that were off, uh, Hallel is the Hebrew word for praise, of praise Psalms that were sung at Passover. Um, and so that's, that's likely what they were singing. And it, it, what's fascinating about that is you read through them, there's a tremendous amount of praise to God in them. In fact, they generally begin and end with the Hebrew phrase, uh, Hallelujah, hallelujah, which is praise the Lord. Uh, but then, uh, like when you get to uh, like Psalm 114, the whole thing's going to be about the exodus out of Egypt, you know, or at least a lot of it's going to uh, have, have echoes back to that. And, uh, and so it's, it's a powerful Passover psalm. And Jesus is about to perform his Passover, where we, through the blood, can be saved uh, and escape the bondage of sin that has held us as slave, that has held us captive. And so Jesus is about to go through this, and, and he has this uh, meal with them in which he speaks about a new covenant, the blood of the covenant that he's going to, to inaugurate. Um, if you read the book of Exodus after the Passover in Exodus 24, the book of the law has been read and written, and Moses recounts it to the people, and they all 
agree to it, and in response, they kill some bulls, and they uh, fill up some bowls with uh, the blood, and then they sprinkle that blood everywhere. And that blood is called the blood of the covenant, and it's shed because of the book of the covenant. And people enter into a covenant deal with God that he has saved them, he's given them the law, and now they've agreed to be his people. And so they have this covenant relationship. Well, what Jesus does is he's taking all of that Passover Exodus imagery, and at Passover, he is offering a new blood of the covenant. It's not a bull or a goat. It is his own blood. And it's something that we remember, and it's something that we partake of every time we gather on Sundays. We did this morning when we took the Lord's Supper. It's a renewal and a reminder of our covenant agreement with God, not with the blood of some goat or some uh, you know, dumb animal, but actually with the blood of the sinless, perfect, holy Son of God. The book of Hebrews ends up making some pretty profound points about the comparison between uh, these bloods. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's a powerful for, uh, passage in Hebrews 9, 13, and 14. But he goes on to say that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Like Jesus is going to be the ultimate perfect sacrifice that does take away sin, that does make our covenant renewal so much more meaningful and valid and important. And all of that is, is language that is uh, infused in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and so Jesus is, is uh, instituting that. They sing this song, and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 27, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's not what anyone wants to hear right there. Um, and at this moment, it's not what anyone's feeling or believing. Like, that is a, that's a downer of a, of, a, of a message right here after this blood of the covenant talk and new Passover and singing a hymn with Jesus. And they go out there to the Mount of Olives, and he says, every one of you is going to fall away. Uh, you know, if you were told that right now, imagine you, as much as you love Jesus and as confident as you are in your faith, we're told you were going to fall away. How would you respond to that? It's like, I, I'd like to think, I'd say, no, I'm not. You know, I, I'm committed. I, I believe in him and I'm going to live for him and I trust and this is something that I'm going to just stick with the rest of my life. Well, after he says this uh, in verse 29, it says, but Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. Peter says basically, look, everyone else may, like, the whole world may fall away. Every one of these guys may fall away. But in me, you have someone you can count on. In me, you have someone you can trust. I will stay committed no matter what. And Jesus turns to Peter in verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Even before the morning, you're going to end up eating your words, Peter. Peter you will deny me three times. You'll have three chances to stand up for the statement you just made, and you will fail. That's not what Peter wants to hear, and Peter doesn't accept it. You know, what? You know it, it is interesting um, how often, as you're reading the Gospels, that Peter or the disciples, like, they're not 
so enamored by the deity of Jesus at this point that they just think he's right all the time. They, they disagree with him sometimes. It pops up in the text. There, Peter might rebuke him, uh, you know, as he does earlier in chapter 8. Well, right here, but Peter kept insi- saying insistently, even if I have to die I, uh, with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. And so Peter says it, and then everyone else is like, yeah, me too. Like, we, we would rather die than deny. You know, we are going to be with you through this all, through all of it. So that's your introduction to what's about to happen at Gethsemane. What's going to happen at Gethsemane is Jesus going through this whole swirl of emotions that we were just talked about, how he, he knows his role in the plans of God, and yet he doesn't want to actually do it. He doesn't want to go through with the agony that is before him. Who would? And Jesus is very much a person. You know, we, we, we need to not uh, make the mistake of so over-spiritualizing Jesus that we only think of him as God, and we forget the fact that he's a real person with real emotions, with a real brain that has real concern and anxiety and worry and stress. The things that, that we deal with, Jesus deals with them. And Jesus is thinking about the fact that he's going to die, and it's going to be miserable. It's going to be an embarrassing, humiliating, agonizing, excruciating death. And so Jesus is considering these things, and what Jesus does as a human that I think we could all learn from, when he's going through those moments, he has a habit of taking those things to God in prayer. And so what's he going to do this night? He's going to take those things to God in prayer. And you wonder if the conversation he just had about his disciples, about the fact that they're going to fall away, about the fact that they're going to betray and deny and all of this, that has to be adding to the anguish. It's not even just the humiliation and the pain and the fear of death. It's actually the, the pain of betrayal of close friends and people who claim to love you. And they're right now saying to my face, I'll never deny you. I'll die with you. I love you. And he knows that they only kind of mean it. They might think they completely mean it. They might be just as confident as, as anyone who's ever said anything. But he knows when push comes to shove, you're not going to stick with this. Um, you wonder, I wonder, when Peter says, you know, I will die with you rather than deny you, I, I, I don't wonder if he's sincere. I'm pretty confident he's very sincere. And I do wonder if, if Peter, if they came to arrest Jesus and say Peter whipped out a sword and started fighting, And then they whipped out their swords. And there was a huge epic battle about the kingdom of God. And Peter lost his life there in the garden. I think Peter would be willing to do that. Uh, In fact, we have pretty good evidence that Peter would be willing to do that because he does whip out a sword in the garden. uh, And he is ready to fight uh, in an an innumerable army. Like, I think Peter dying gloriously on the battlefield for the kingdom, I think he's willing to do that. I don't think at this point Peter is prepared for the willing sacrifice of self that Jesus is trying to bring about, that Jesus is going to endure. It's one thing to die fighting. It's another thing to die loving. And and, and Jesus is going to show a different way to approach death. Death for your enemies rather than death fighting your enemies. And and Peter, I think, may get like some of the, I'm willing to die for this because it really matters to me. But when push comes to shove, and he sees Jesus being arrested, and Jesus is not, 
Jesus rebukes him for taking out a sword. Jesus does not fight. Jesus is being led away. I think Peter's whole world uh, is like is spiraling at the and, and he doesn't understand why would Jesus do this? Like, why wouldn't Jesus at least try to like to defend the kingdom of God? You know, it, it doesn't it matter. Peter comes from a long line of, of people in Israel who, when, the, when God's will and word were attacked, violence was an option in defending it. You know, when Goliath challenged the armies of God, you don't go die for Goliath, you throw a rock at his head. Like, that's, that's the story that Peter is, is, is part of. And when he thinks about his great kings, when he thinks about the judges, the Samson, and, and, and when you think about David, and when you think about, like, uh, the, the tradition of zeal in ancient Israel, like, that was something that, that motivated people. That shortly before this time period, the Maccabean revolt was somewhat successful. And, and like, those are things that I think influence the way Peter thinks. You, that, if you take something seriously, you're willing to fight for it. And Jesus didn't even fight for it. Jesus was just taken. And so Peter, I think, is completely confused. And rather than giving him, say, a couple of weeks to consider these things, to work through them, to read scripture, to pray, uh, to, to wait and see the resurrection and sit down with Jesus and learn and be like, oh, wow. Rather than waiting for Peter's life to come to some sort of equilibrium where, where things started to make sense a little bit, Satan chooses that moment the moment of utter despair and confusion and doubt and not knowing why Jesus did this, but he's scared. He just tried to kill someone in a garden. Jesus was just arrested. Like all of that's going on in those dark hours are when Satan chooses to have people start coming up to Peter and asking him about his faith. You know, I'm, I'm almost certain that if the day before a girl would have come up to Peter and said, uh, were you with Jesus? He would say, yes. Peter was with, publicly with Jesus. Like, he, was, he would have been fine saying that. Like if, if three or four days later, uh, if Peter wouldn't ask that question, yeah, I think Peter would say yes. But, like, this is the hardest moment for him to give that answer, and that's when Satan chooses to have him ask. And that leads me to think Satan doesn't play the way we want him to. He's not always going to play fair. He's going to hit you at your most unprepared moment. He's going to hit you when you're least ready to give an answer. He's going to make it as hard on you as possible. And I think that's when Peter finds himself at his most confused, his most scared. That's when he's asked. And so in preparation for that, Jesus, to prepare his own heart and soul, is going to go into the garden and spend time in prayer. And he tells Peter to do the same thing. Peter? You're going to have a wild night tonight. I just told you about it. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. You need to spend some time right now praying that you do not enter into temptation. Pray. Like, spend some time talking to God and preparing yourself. This is what Jesus is in the habit of doing, and he's inviting Peter into that. So when you get to verse 32, it says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And then he took Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground and he began to pray. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, 
all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? By the way, that word, keep watch, um, is what Peter's being asked to do. That's a word that in chapter 13 is uh, used quite a few times when talking about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and potentially, uh, the, in some latter verses, the second coming of Jesus. And what he's saying is be on the alert, keep watch, uh, because, in essence, you don't know when that's going to happen. And so make sure that you stay ready. And here... He's using that same phrase, he's talking to Peter, and he's saying, just for a short time, like an hour, keep watch, be prepared. And yet Peter, though perhaps he wants to, uh, is, uh, is going to succumb and is going to give in to, to uh, the, the, the weakness of the flesh, and he's going to fall asleep. But as we see that happening, you look back at some of the things that, uh, that we read, like in verse 33 and 34, we find that Jesus is very distressed and troubled. And then in verse 34, he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Um, in those passages about his soul being grieved and him being deeply troubled and all of that, I think you're seeing kind of what we started off by talking about. Uh, this is, Jesus is very much a human and he's very much going to endure one of the worst things a human being can endure. And it's something he could stop if he wanted to. He could refuse to do it. And it's something that, uh, that it's going to be physically, emotionally, spiritually excruciating for him. Like there's, when you're counting the benefits for Jesus here, if he doesn't care about other people and he's only focused on what's best for him, there's no reason at all to do this. Uh, the only reason he does this is out of love for what it would do for you and I and for, for others. But as he's considering these things, he is stressed and troubled about what he's going to endure. He says in, uh, in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. That's an interesting way to start that prayer. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Why does he start off by saying all things are possible for you? Well, I think it's kind of about what we were saying earlier. It's like, God, you can do anything. <laughs> can you not come up with a, a different option here? It's like, let's come up with a pill that everyone takes, and that gives them forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Like, there's something. Like, isn't there a better way than for, for me to have to be rejected and denied and beaten and mocked and stripped naked and nailed to a piece of wood until I die in agony and anguish. Isn't there a, a better way than that? And yet he ends it not by talking about what's possible, but by talking with, about what the will of God actually is and saying, but it's not about my will. It's about your will. Even if I think, I think there's a better way. Even if I hope we could do something different. Even if I, I you could do anything. I'm going to trust your will on this. And I think that is the only attitude we could have if we're going to live faithful to God. Because I can tell you, there are a million things in my life that I could say, God, 
you could do all things, surely you could have done this a different way and it would have worked out a lot better. Or, or I would have liked it a lot better. Or it seems like it would have actually been better. Uh, you know, like there, there are things that, that sometimes you pray for and, you know, I, I can think of things in my life that I've prayed for and uh, that, that looking back, I can see like, oh, wow, I think, I think God answered that. Maybe it wasn't the way I expected. Maybe it was like, you know, but I prayed and it happened and that's wonderful. But I can think a lot of times when I have prayed fervently for something and I've prayed for it and I prayed the same thing and I didn't give up on praying and I prayed for it over and over and over again, whether it be like the, about a loved one who is sick and you're praying for them to get better and you're thinking, God, you can do all things. That's what Jesus, you can, all things are possible for you. You could just heal them right now. You could do that. I believe you can do that. Please do that. Please do that. And then he doesn't do it. And you're trying to think, how was that better? How was that better than, than what I prayed for? I feel like what I prayed for was, it would have been a pretty good thing. A lot of people would have been really happy. Um, and you can, you can get lost in that spiral of thinking, if I were God, I would have done it differently. Um, but Jesus, who actually is God, even though I think he knows God can do all things, he ends this prayer not by saying, and my will would be best if you would just follow it. He says, it's not my will, but your will. And you don't really get in that, that nice comforting sentence of, and it all makes sense now. You don't always get that. You know, sometimes lessons on prayer, we end them by saying, you know, well, you know, God doesn't work on our timetable. And that's true. God doesn't work on our timetable. Uh, and, and a lot of times things that in the moment you don't understand, but looking back, aha, they make a lot of sense. And that's always wonderful too. But the reality is there's times when it's dark and it hurts and you never get the answer you want. You never get the satisfaction. And that's when trusting in the will of God instead of our own is what gets us through the day saying, I'd, I would have done it differently, but not my will, yours be done. And learning to, in some way, be content to let God be God and me not be. Um, Jesus offers that prayer, powerful prayer, while Peter falls asleep. Who do you think is better preparing themselves for the hours that lie ahead? Jesus offering that prayer to God or Peter, who won't stay awake for an hour. Uh, that happens, and then in verse uh, 37, it says, And he came, Jesus came, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for even one hour? Then notice verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The Spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. How do you know the Spirit's willing? Well, you can see it back up in verse 29 when Peter says, even though all may fall away, I will not fall away. His Spirit's there, you know? His Spirit is, he's, he's ambitious. Uh, when you get to verse 31, Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. His Spirit is fully committed to this thing. But he also is a real flesh and blood person. And sometimes when you get tired, you fall asleep. Uh, Peter's mindset, his spirit is, is, is willing to do the right thing, 
but when his flesh is on the line, that's when weakness is going to come in. When Jesus is telling him, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation, I think Jesus is trying to prepare him for what's about to happen that night. The thing Jesus just told him was going to happen, he's trying to say, get prepared. Start spending some time in prayer and thinking and in, in, in getting ready for this. And uh, then Jesus, in verse 39, he goes away and he, he offers his prayer again. And uh, verse 40, and again he came and he found them sleeping. For their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. When they, when they wake up, they don't have a good excuse. I'm just sorry, I'm tired. You know, like your friend who you claim to love is about to die. Uh, he's telling you, you have a, you're all going to fall away tonight. He told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Spend some time in prayer about this. And yet their, their bodies aren't letting them. They're too tired. And they sleep instead of pray. Jesus spends this time in prayer, and I think that's helpful preparation for him to be faithful no matter what lies ahead of him. They are unable to do so. Um, Then you get to verse 41. It says, And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us get going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And it's right then that Judas shows up. But in this, I think you're getting a comparison between the one who stays up faithfully in prayer and the others who their flesh is too weak for them to do so. And they they don't spend that time in prayer. When the guards come and when things get hard and when things get confusing, Who's the one who's prepared to be faithful? Jesus is the one who is faithfully endures, faithfully is abandoned, faithfully is beaten, faithfully is rejected, faithfully dies on the cross. It's Peter who, in just a moment, is going to deny three times. Um, It's the other disciples who are going to flee for fear. It's the other ones who fall away that very night. Um, I think there's a lot of lessons in here um, about... um, the call of God and, and things that we could do and, and maybe some lessons on the value of prayer and preparation for it and maybe some lessons on, on resonating with Jesus as he is not pretending to feel anguish here, but he's truly experiencing anguish, the depths of which uh, you know, not many of us have been able to share. Uh, that's something that, that Jesus is... is going through a really difficult time as he's trying to prepare for why the God that he loves so much would have him go through this when God can do all things. Um, There's lessons about not getting the answers you want to prayer and being faithful anyway. Um, But as, as we look at this, I do think that there are going to be times in our lives when we are fully convinced that we're gonna do the right thing. Uh, that we're going to be faithful, that we want uh, to be with, you know, we want to, we want to be someone God can count on, to always be uh, obedient and faithful and loyal to his cause. But at the same time, there's going to be times when even though our spirit is willing, our flesh is going to be weak. There are going to be times when what we want to do doesn't match who we are and what we actually do. Peter does deny three times, and uh, I've said it before, um, I heard someone say it before, and it always stuck with me, but the, the sign that kind of, uh, the alarm bell 
of Peter's third denial uh, was that rooster crowing. And the thing that's, that's terrible about that is the rooster crowing is something that happens every day, like first thing in the morning. Like that's how you wake up. You know, that, the rooster crow is your alarm clock. And, and I wonder how often it was that Peter, he three times slept instead of praying. He three times denied Jesus. Uh, it's not until the Gospel of John that you get a threefold uh, statement of his love for Jesus after the resurrection. But you wonder how many times hearing the rooster crow in the morning, he's reminded each and every day of his failure. And he starts off his day every day remembering that fateful, horrible sound of that rooster crow that one night the night when his whole world was out of control, the night when he was scared and confused, the night when he denied his Savior, who he loves and who he spends his life serving. Every morning, that's the reminder. And I think that Jesus, and I think that God, doesn't want him to go that route because that type of always overemphasizing and focusing on our sins and failures can keep us from actually being what God wants us to be. That can hold us back as much as anything else. Sin has a way of making you want to give up. It's not only like, I did a bad thing. It's like, I did a bad thing, and I'm worthless now, and I can't move on from it. And sin can be a snare that entangles you and keeps you in sin. Sin often leads to more sin. Uh, And so when you have Judas, the one who shows up here in just a moment, his sin did lead to more sin. His sin led to utter despair and to giving up on life itself. Peter is a powerful story of the depths of sin not winning, but Peter being able to overcome, being able to be the one that Christ still entrusted with the keys of the kingdom, that Christ still trusted to be a great apostle and leader and in, 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 uh, in, in, uh, minister in, in, the, in the early church and to have a fantastic ministry. And so... You read through this, this story here in Gethsemane, and it's a dark story, and it's a dark moment. But out of it, darkness doesn't win. Just like the cross itself. The earth becomes dark, but that's not the end of the story. The story continues on from that with the sun rising on a Sunday morning, and new life is what fills the pages, and new life is what changes the world, and resurrection life is what we have to hold in. And so here's what I would uh, want to end this lesson by saying is, I don't know where everyone is in their walk with God, whether you're in the dark night of Gethsemane, the darkness of of the cross, but don't think that you have to remain there. There is always hope with Christ. There's always a sun that rises. There's always hope of new life and resurrection. There's hope of a better day. There's hope of coming out of the sin and out of the darkness into the brightness of the light of God and you're invited to do so right here uh, and right now tonight. If there's anyone here who would like the prayers of the church, if there's anyone here who would like uh, the, the strength of the community to try to be on your side and to encourage you in your walk with God and the forgiveness of God himself, we pray that you would let that be known, that you would come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.